Well, thank you very much for your kind introduction. Um, just in order to save time, I will go directly to my talk. Uh, to, uh, today's my talk is uh, Victim of Nationalism in the Transnational Memory Space. Uh, very recently, I began to identify myself not only as a historian, but also as a sort of memory activist. Because in a sense, my work as a historian contributes to making, remaking, or you know, decomposing this uh, present uh, Munema space. So, and then my work, actually my main field is Polish history from the viewpoint of national history. So my interest in the victim of nationalism originates in my knowledge of Polish debates on the Jewish question and the, all those, you know, in Poland and also in East Asia. Let's see. This is genealogy of the, to show where did my interest in victim of nationalism come from. Actually, basically, it's a Jan Bronski's very famous, but not very known to the outside world, is a, a sort of literary criticism of Chesap uh, Miyoshi's uh, two poems. It's uh, the purpose, uh, looking at ghetto, and the Campo de Fiori. It's about the, how can I say, so the pose as bystanders while this Holocaust was perpetuated in the Poland. And this is very moving poems, and this essay provoked lots of debates in 1987 already in Poland because he, you know, hinted at the Polish, how can I, accomplice in the, in the, uh, the, uh, uh, this Holocaust and the Poles were really angry and many patriotic Poles and very well known, even very well known intellectuals really, you know, criticized this Bronski essay. It was done in the Tigodonik of Shechny, a Catholic weekly in Krakow in 1987. Then Jan Gross Neighbors, you know, is made at the, uh, such a um, really big controversy in the year 2000. And then the Zygmunt Bauman, who was a Polish Jew, actually he was uh, expelled from the party in 1968. And then at the time he uh, coined a very interesting term of hereditary victim. Means that usually the post-war generation in Israel regard themselves as the victims of holocausts. So physically totally it was impossible for them to be victimized by the holocaust. Despite that they identify themselves as the victim of Holocaust. And how this sort of thinking actually contributes to justifying contemporary nationalism and the national solidarity in Israel. So I try to apply this concept of hereditary victimhood to the national historiography in East Asia. And then I, I knocked on the post-colonial understanding of historiography in East Asia from the angle of hereditary victimhood. Then in the year 2007, there was a really fuss on the Yokohawa Shimawaki's book, So Far Away from the Bamboo Group. This is a sort of, you know, East Asia version of Fair Tribune, or Vipeng it's, it's an explanation of the uh, Japanese who had lived in Manchuria and northern part of Korea. And so this is a typical Fair Tribune story. And then when I met a very serious response from the Korean Americans who initiated the debates on the Yokohashima Wakins, then I found, okay, then I can call it victim of nationalism. So for the first time, I used the term of victim of nationalism in the year 2007. Then I, I was invited to a book project by Aleida Asman and Sebastian Konnat and the memory in a global age. So I, for the first time, I formulated rather amply 
this victim of nationalism with the cases, focus on the cases of uh, Poland, Germany, Israel, and Japan and Korea. So now I have had a book project for a long time, but never ending story, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully I can finish it soon. And the, uh, let me start with these uh, certain, how can I, terms. So victim of nationalism is not correct in a sense. So certain victim of nationalism stays in a certain uh, transition from victim to sacrifice. So certain sublime of the meaning from, of the victim into the sacrifice, then victim of nationalism stays in between. So for example, a German word of offer or Polish word ofiara, it does not differentiate between victims and sacrifices, like English, right? So, but in English, we can uh, differentiate a little bit better than German and Polish between uh, victim and sacrifice. In the East Asian words, Korean, hisengja, piheja. In Japanese, giseisha, higaisha, also we can differentiate between the, uh, the just simple victims and sacrifices. And in a sense, this uh, victim of nationalism emerges on the surface when people's perception of victim is sublimed into sacrifice. So this sub sublimation of meaning of the word can be found in the emergence of victim of nationalism from the terms of this. And this Urakami uh, Hansai uh, sets is, I mean, you know, the uh, uh, Jewish Institute of History in Warsaw and the Yad Vashem has fought for the argument that we were the first who used the term of Holocaust for the first time. But I think it was Japanese who used the term of Holocaust for the first time, Hansai. Hansai is Japanese translation of Holocaust, Bonze. Actually, the literal meaning of Hansa is, is, it was, you know, can be found in Nagai Takashi's Bear of Nagasaki in 1949. So, uh, Maximilian Kolbe is another story there, but this, this is also the, another different story. But anyway, even Maximilian Kolbe has been very much, how can I say, certain idealized in Japan. Even they made a film of Maximilian Kolbe as a hero, right? And then, but the Maximilian Kolbe was a missionary in, in 1930s, so he was affiliated to the Murakami Tenshudo and so on. But what is important here is the Hansai, this, the Japanese translation or Chinese translation, Korean translation. We are, we are using the same word. Bonje Hansai was used for the first time by Nagai uh, uh, Takashi in 1949. So Hansai is, uh, the, the Holocaust is, uh, appeared in the Bible, Genesis 22. So the whole bunch of offering of lamb on the altar of sacrifice, whose meaning is. So, but the Nagai Takashi was a Catholic, Japanese Catholic who died of, uh, at the, the side effect of atomic bombing in Nagasaki. So he was in a sort of symbol of Japanese victims by the atomic bombing in Nagasaki. And also, if you, usually Hiroshima is much more popular than Nagasaki, but if you go to Nagasaki, I think that this atmosphere in Nagasaki in regard to victimhood is, how can I say, much more emotional than Hiroshima because certain, uh, certain religious victims who were Japanese Catholics, and it's very, very strange way this related with the Japanese victimhood by the atomic bombing in Nagasaki. And the, and the, the Nagai Takashi is one of those 
figures who are centered in the Japanese victimhood in Nagasaki by the atom bombing is plus certain Catholic one. What I took this is that this victim nationalism is a typical, typical modern phenomenon that can be understood as a part of political religion or secular religion. So when pro-dominant mori, which is, you know, the, this is, is, uh, the sacrifice oneself for God can be found in describing these Catholic martyrs, right? But suddenly when this pro-dominant mori changed into pro-patria mori, to sacrifice oneself for fatherland, then I think that this uh, certain, they share the same concept of sacrificial offering. But pro-dominant mori is for God, Catholic religious matters for God, but this nationalist for fatherland, for the nation. So when this uh, a Catholic concept or a religious concept of a pro-domino mori was changed into pro-patria mori, then the, we can find that this, it, it can facilitate quite easily the emergence of victim nationalism. Yeah, this, this one point here. And then internal globalization is a term uh, coined by Schneider and the, who's got, they, they wrote the, the cosmopolitan memory of Holocaust and then they tried to uh, cosmopolitanize Holocaust memory in the global memory space. Means that a certain, one can, one can find, one can witness emergence of a global public sphere or a global civil society which incessantly talks of global memory. Even Holocaust has been always used as a reference to analyze different victims in different historical situations. So they called it internal globalization. And to some extent, I can, I can accept, okay, yeah. This is, a, for example, in Asia, people were indifferent to what happened during the Second World War in Europe. But nowadays, Everyone is talking of Holocaust, even in East Asia, when we are talking of the, our common past in the Second World War. This is a sort of uh, a good indication to show that how the global memory space has emerged recently. And I think that in 1990s, the, the civil war in former Yugoslavia and the certain tragedies in Kosovo and genocide in Rwanda and Sudan all those genocides actually, which was televised, right, transmitted uh, uh, through the television and CNN, actually promoted to awakening the, the global audience to, to the, such a tragedy or geno like genocide in so far away, so distant countries. And then this sort of awakening of the genocide which happened in distant countries in a sense, led people to a self-reflection on their own past. In that way, we can see that global memory space has worked, especially since the uh, fall of Berlin Wall in the post-Cold War era. And then this uh, Stockholm Declaration is one of the typical, it means that the, for the first time in the world history, human history, the, there was a summit meeting more than 20, 23 countries who gathered together in Stockholm and who specified education of Holocaust in the history is lesson should be the precondition for those East European countries to enter NATO and European countries. 
for the first time, you know, presidents and premiers, they demanded history edu education of specific historical events, right, for certain um, the political composition. And then, so International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the, the, the day that the Auschwitz were li liberated, and all those things suddenly can be found in the year uh, the 2000. And also this Women's International War Crime Tribunal, which was held in Tokyo, actually, uh, who, which tried the Japanese Emperor Hirohito as the uh, a criminal of the, for the, the who is in, in the responsible for the comfort of women. But also very interesting, in this uh, Women's International War Crime Tribunal, judges were those ladies who worked for the a, a tribunal of the former Yugoslavian war criminals in Hague. And also one, uh, one lady who was a prosecutor and advisor in prosecuting sexual crimes and genocide crimes in Rwanda and former Yugoslavia. Those people came to Tokyo and they, they worked as judges. So I think that in 1991, Kim Ak-sun, the former comfort woman, she appeared on the scene and she publicly, you know, tell, told her experience. But at that time, I think this comfort of women was not a global issue. But through the former Yugoslavia and the civil war, people could witness what happened to those Islamic women who had held by, in the concentration camp by the Serbian, and Serbian nationalists. And then all the world, the global audience began to be sensitive or sensible of those uh, sexual crimes in former Yugoslavia, and then suddenly it ignited people's consciousness or people's attention to the comfort women, not only in East Asia, but also in the other part of the world. Even nowadays in Germany, certain brothers that was run by German Wehrmacht during the Second World War, and the brothers in the concentration camp, and brothers in the camp of the forced labor, is now one of the one of the very newest, uh, the historical topics that is now the, the the researched by young young researchers. I think that this sort of move also the uh, in the opposite way was influenced by the East Asian uh, debates on the comfort of women. Then this sort of uh, how can I circulation of people's memory of the tragedy of the tragic past actually reinforces each other's or different parts, people's sensibility of the certain uh, uh, past crimes and atrocities. And the multi, but this is not, what I, mm, the, I, I differed from this uh, Schneider and this internal globalization and cosmopolitanization of Holocaust is that this memory interaction, this, this is multidirectional. For example, um, I, I mean this uh, certain uh, uh, connectivity of the post-colonial memory and Holocaust memory can be found in today's uh, global memory space. For example, a memory activist of comfort women from Korea, when they go to Un United States, they usually used to have press conference in Jewish cultural center. Did this very intentionally, uh, you know, they, they picked up Jewish Cultural Center for press release. And also in the year 2011, in December, there was a meeting of a former comfort women and Holocaust survivors in the Queensborough College in New York City. 
And it was uh, co-organized by the Cooperberg Holocaust Center and the Korean-American Civic Empowerment uh, NGO organizations. But this double-edged, of course. It's a, it's a, it could be transnational memory, but also Korean, uh, some nationalist memory activists try to uh, appropriate the American audience sensibility to Holocaust on the national cause to propaganda about the comfort women case. But, you know, William Cooper, today is uh, the day of Crystal Lacht, right? The, the November 10. But this William Cooper, who was the, 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 the human rights activist in the Yoruba Yoruba tribe in the uh, uh, Yugos no, no, Australia in 1938, he was one of the first non-European guys, non-Jewish guys, who protested against Crystal Lacht in 1938. So who, he was the first, you know, compared to the Australian immigration policy, which did not issue visa, visa to, to Shephardic Jews. They issued a visa only to Ashkenazi Jews because they're racist, you know. And then compared to this Australian policy, this uh, uh, William Cooper, you know, his, uh, his uh, protest action is really remarkable. In 1938, he was one of the first. And also, this is very interesting. When the uh, Lemkin, a Polish Jew, who wrote the, the, the manuscript, no, the draft of the, the uh, Genocide Convention, and it was passed in the UN, you know who was the first uh, the, the group activist who responded to the uh, genocide convention? It was American Black Communist Group, and they they wrote uh, the short the, the it's not the 150 pages uh, book of Richard genocide, and they said that okay we were we American Africans were victims by the whole no not whole by the genocide. Because slavery itself, slavery was the uh, you know institution of genocide. So they they tried to persuade Lemkin to recognize American slavery as a genocide, but Lemkin said no. But this is a diff very complicated story. Anyway, so it is very interesting to find that the American African uh, Black, uh, the communist group who responded was the, uh, the first group who responded to the. Lemkin Convention. And also, W.E.B. Du Bois is very interesting. In the 1948, nine or eight or nine, anyway, he paid a visit to Warsaw Ghetto, ruined the Warsaw Ghetto, which after having participated in the uh, sociology conference in Moscow on the way, way back to the United States, he dropped by the Warsaw intentionally, and then he wrote a very short uh, memoir of his visiting of these uh, ruins of Warsaw Ghetto, and then what he saw and hear from ruins of Warsaw Ghetto was not the, you know, Jews. He said, oh, I could see screaming of African-American slaves from the ruins of Warsaw Ghetto. Means that Already in 1940s, immediately after the Second World War, those uh, American-African, you know, activists could recognize or could, how can I say, elevate the suffering of Jews or to equalize suffering of Jews with their own sufferings as American slaves in the United States. 
So Dubois case is very interesting. And Amy Cesar, you know, when usually the peoples began to be engaged in the uh, memories of uh, different atrocities in the wrong distant world, the American, the, the anti, anti-war campaign in Vietnam was the watershed. For example, Amy Cesar actually, he, in, the, in campaigning against American atrocities in Vietnam, he picked up the French colonial atrocities in Algeria and the other colonies, and the Honda Gatsich, who wrote, uh, you know, Chugokuna Tabi, actually he was a war correspondent in Vietnam by the Asai Shimbun. And in the, in the preface to the English version of this, his book, Chugokuna Tabi, he wrote explicitly when he was reporting American atrocities in Vietnam, suddenly he began to think of, oh, then what would Japanese army have behaved in China? Japanese army's behavior could be quite different from American army? Perhaps not. And then, so that's why he made the decision to do a travel alongside the route of Japanese invasion in China. And that was the beginning of the, um, the, uh, his writing of Chuo Tabi and the Japanese public debates on the, uh, on the Nanjing massacre. And the Telford Taylor, this guy was the uh, American prosecutor in the Nuremberg. And then he wrote a book uh, the, upon the, the uh, request by perhaps Bertrand Russell and Russell Committee. He wrote a book, Nuremberg and Vietnam. So it means that he tried to put the Holocaust and American atrocities and certain colonial atrocities in 1960s in the similar context of world history and something like that. So we can see the global memory space like that. Oh, this is also very, this is more complicated story. I mean that, you know, so in now Japan, for example, Park Yuhua's uh, book on the comfort of women is quite popular. It means that it's really difficult to say a, a very complicated question, but I was really surprised by that many of Japanese uh, so-called Yoshindekina Jishikijin actually signed in support of Bagyuha's book, though they did not dare to write such a book by themselves. Right? And this guy is uh, Bogdan Mushiao, a Polish writing historian, but actually he became a sort of star in the transnational memory space because when he spot the factual failure, factual errors in the exhibition of uh, German Wehrmacht atrocities in mid-1990s. And it is very intriguing to see that it was not, no German historian tried to find the putty uh, factual uh, errors, but it was Polish historian and one Hungarian guy, actually, who found, you know, about 20 uh, captions wrong, and because, but, this is really trivial factual errors because they made a caption, oh, these guys uh, are just digging up, up the causes, victims, uh, the perpetrated by Nazi Germans, but actually they were Jews who were killed by the Enkabude. But after three days, those guys who were digging up were killed by, by, by Nazis. But anyway, in this way, those, it's very intriguing to find it is German, no, Polish historian and Hungarian historian who found those errors, and then 
they they works were, 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 were you know published in Germany even before in Poland and in Hungary. So this means that the, how the really uh, in the in the transnational memory space certain historical works has been used and misused, abused, and appropriated by the different different uh, the parties. And also contested memories and the victim, you know, especially the uh, usually the national memory had to put a focus on heroeship, right? Oh, we national heroes fought like this, and the, we overcame such a difficulties, and we are great nation, and so on. But suddenly, from certain moment on, we could find the shifts of national narratives from the heroeship to victim. We don't know exactly. I cannot pick up one exact date, but perhaps on the Ahiman trial might be the starting point, and Frankfurt trial in mid 1960s, and 1968, also in early 1970s, there's a Holocaust TV series in NBC, and the other Hollywood films, films, and all those things, and also the the emergence of global memory space or global public sphere in a sense, put the pressure to nationalists who cannot take a pride any longer in their own heroeship. So suddenly, nationalist narrative began to shift from the heroeship to victimhood. And then what we can uh, witness from this victimhood is that contest of victimhood. How many people were you that? You know, we, in, in us, more than five million were that. No, six millions were that. So this sort of uh, distasteful competition over who suffered most can be found in this uh, victim of nationalism uh, discourses in the transnational memory space. And also hierarchization of victims can be found. So in 1967, there was a very interesting, a very uh, interesting is too much and funny is not the right word, but there was a very weird weird debate, uh, anti-Semitic campaign in People's Poland. In 1967, uh, they, in Poland, they published for the first time their own version of Encyclopedia. It's a nine for 10 volumes. And then the main editor was a Jewish Polish, uh, the communist. And then in that encyclopedia, he tried to differentiate between concentration, Obod Concentration is concentration camp, and uh, Obod Zagwadi is extermination camp. And his, in this encyclopedia, concentration camp is for Poles and communists and the political prisoners, and extermination camp was for Jews. But this sort of interpretation contradicted party's official interpretation of Second World War. No, Nazi Germans targeted Poles. So their main aim in regard to Jews is to, to you know, evict them outside Europe while they try to kill all Poles. So that's why these, uh, uh, the Polish-Jewish, really, really committed, committed communists, they exiled to Sweden. But they didn't go back to, they didn't go to Israel. Instead of Israel, they chose Sweden. Still, they are living in Sweden. Every summer, they have a one week's you know, reunion with vodkas and so on. This, but they are really, really committed communist group. But despite that, because of this differentiation, they were, you know, expelled from the party in 1967. And this is all shows that the, uh, no, 
how can I say, such a uh, uh, nationalist narrative dominates the uh, people's memory of, uh, of uh, their own past of being victimized. And the Korean victims in Hiroshima is a well-known story uh, analyzed by Lisa Yoneyama, a wonderful book. And also the Prague Declaration versus 70 Years Declaration, right? Prague Declaration, these Eastern European intellectuals include Václav Havel and the own, they, they try to put a stress on the suffering of those Eastern Europeans by the Stalinist regime. And they were unhappy with the global memory space where people put a, a, the unilateral weight on the Holocaust. So they thought, oh, the suffering of us Eastern Europeans who suffered from the Stalinist rule are totally disregarded and, you know, it was the um, uh, main complaint, and then against these uh, 70 years, the uh, Banja Conference, the Jewish intellectuals again, uh, you know, uh, the proclaimed the 70 years <coughs> declaration. Don't to please don't equalize suffering of Jews with the suffering of East Europeans by Stalinist regime. So don't do this. So actually, it, it's it's very intriguing because in a sense, this is. Uh, same plot that can be found in the historical strike in 1980s in Germany. In a sense, these right-wing guys actually, they put an emphasis, Hitler was sort of a European civil war concept, right? Stalinist expansion and Stalinist aggression, aggression and then the Nazi certain defense of uh, civili Western civilization, sort of things, sort of things can be found uh, in this uh, uh, things and also Erika Steinbach and uh, you, it's very interesting if you if you type uh, a very famous German historians in Gazeta Wyborcza in Polish newspaper for example Jurgen Koka you can never find the uh, name of Jurgen Koka but if you type Steinbach you can find more than a hundred times of Steinbach in Polish newspaper even Steinbach had an interview with a small small local newspaper even that interview is a uh, you know, it's uh, dealt with uh, in the Polish newspaper. It means that because Erika Steinbach was a sort of a typical Hikiage, Hikiage representative who justifies, you know, sufferings and so on and so on. But also there are different, uh, different, you know. I mean, the, this fair tribe has, memory of fair tribe has been suppressed in East Germany. So East Germany, it was not allowed for them to use the term of fair tribe. They use the term of umjitlo, and in people's Poland also, pipengenia, pishedlenia, pishedlenia, different terms with the different nuances has been used in describing same, same historical events, same historical experiences. Means that all those memories are really delicately intricated by political intentions and political situations, and this is more complicated when it was put in the transnational context. Who, who is the subject of remembering this event and who is the object of this remembering this event? What's the meaning of remembering this way in this country or in the country? So it becomes more and more complicated. And then also we can find long distance nationalism typically in this global memory space. The it was Korean Americans who really angry at the uh, Yokogawa Shimawaki's uh, description of uh, this uh, Hikiage. It's a fair tribal story. You mean that 
You say that you Japanese were victims and we Koreans were perpetrators. <laughs> But, you know, the, in the United States, so the people are ignorant of East Asian history when they read, you know, Yokogashima Watkins, they can get such an impression. So Koreans say that it was translated in 2005. But in Korea, it was good. The book reviews in the newspapers were not bad. But suddenly in the year 2007, there was a very serious, well-organized, coordinated, orchestrated attack against Yokohashima Watkins' book because the attack initiated in the United States, in New York area, Boston area, and so on. So I could find a, a really interesting long-distance national. Pai was the group who initiated this criticism. Pai means parents for accurate Asian history education. Right? So Korean American, of course, Irish Chang, her, her explanation of this uh, Nanjing massacre is to represent certain uh, Chinese American nationalists, nationalism, and also the, 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 the little Tokyo museums you can find uh, in the, in the, when they have an ex exhibition of the immigration, history of uh, Japanese immigration to the United States, More than half is full of those, uh, the experienced Japanese internment camp during the Second World War. And the Polish-American Congress, uh, this, uh, you know, they are really politically still influential group to contemporary politics in Poland. For example, when Kwasniewski at the time president the, the, was about to make an official apology in Niedbabne in 2001, This uh, chairperson of the Polish-American uh, Congress wrote an open letter to Kwasniewski. You are not eligible to apologize on behalf of the whole nation. So we do not think that we are responsible for this. So Kwasniewski had to modify his uh, you know, statement. I apologize of, on behalf of the Poles who feel responsibility for the atrocities in the Yedvang yeah, or something like that. So it means that this long-distance nationalism is now really, really works out, and also certain, how can I, diaspora nationalism, right? Usually diaspora nationalism has been applied to American Jews and Jewish groups in the different parts of the world, but nowadays almost of all different ethnic groups who emigrated to the foreign countries, they are really carriers of the uh, long-distance nationalism and so on. So how many minutes do I have? Five to ten. Okay, I'll, I'll kick. I'll kick. Okay, and the, so in and in this uh, global memory space, there are quite interesting is cross-referencing. Always, in order to emphasize our suffering of Korean nation, they always took pick up this Holocaust or something like that. And Auschwitz and Hiroshima and Auschwitz and the Japanese uh, right-wing right-wing opinion leaders, they say that always, oh, we, Jew, we Japanese and Jews are the arch-victims arch by the Western racism. And the Israelis are really angry at that, the, you know, uh, the paralyzing the Auschwitz and Hiroshima. So it was very interesting in the uh, Frankfurt Argument and Zeitung to 2000, March 15, when the Israel was about to open history, uh, the Holocaust History Museum in Israel, They invited lots of you know, foreign delegations, but they did not issue invitation to Japanese because they were angry at the Japanese put the Holocaust and Hiroshima on those equal footing. And very interestingly, Korean newspapers took up this article. Look, 
those Japanese were not invited to Israel. So this, this sort of um, very childish but, but appealing to some people, right? I, I think Trump is not that smarter than, than, than this sort of you know, logic. So, so it's quite uh, understandable. So comfort women activists on, and then lots of things to do. So even the uh, ultra-right-wing uh, memory activists always picked up Holocaust to, to justify their own ways of remembering the past. This is done. And one is, the other one is secularizing. Okay, our, our, our suffering is different. You can never ever imagine this. You can never ever understand this. For example, when I used to meet the Poles in the street and the bar, they said, Why, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm, I'm studying a little bit Polish. No, you foreigner, you cannot never ever understand our own tragic history. And many American guys who came to Korea in 1960s, they had the same response from the Koreans. Oh, no, you American from the rich country? No, you can never ever understand our own history. It means that they don't permit outsiders to approach their own past, right? Sort of epistemological national bastion is formed based on the uniqueness of our own past. These sort of things. And the positivism is being quite often used as a way of secularizing their own uh, history. So if you just, I think that the, we, we talked of internet, but if you uh, visit this uh, reviewers corner in Amazon.com. You can find really, really interesting ordinary people's response to Yed Wabne and the Jan Gross and the Yoko Kawashima Watkins. And I actually, once I analyzed these Korean responses to Yoko Kawashima Watkins, Japanese Hikiage, and the Polish, uh, Polish response to Yed Wabne, Jan Gross, even the idiom are same. This fabrication in history, total lies, and uh, this fiction with the footnotes, something like that. <laughs> so, so, and also this suspicion, always suspicion. They don't provide any proof, but suspicion would be enough. Right? For example, oh, Yoko Kamashima's Watkins' father was a office of a 731 medical unit. Of course, they don't have any proof, but after three months, okay, we don't have any proof, but anyway, suspicion is already worked out very well to show that Kawashima is not reliable, something like that. And in, in the Holocaust case, in Polish case, Kielce Pogrom, and the, in the even Yedwabne case, all these suspicions are really overwhelming, okay? And Schumer Wasserstein, who was the only witness on which there's uh, uh, the uh, uh, Jan Gross, uh, debased his argument, and then after that, oh, there was a saying, there was a hearsay that Schumer Wasserstein was the officer of Enkavde, the Stalin's, you know, this uh, uh, secret police, and also in the Kielce pogrom, when the in 19, mid 1990s, when Polish society was talking, began to talk about Polish pogrom, no Kielce pogrom, then there was certain thing. Oh, I met a guy who wore the uniform in Kielce. Then I met him in the Soviet embassy in Jerusalem in 1960s. Of course, there is no proof. But means that, that means, oh, this Polish, the pogrom in Kielce was done not by Poles, but by certain 
you know, mobilized mobs by the Soviet and government, something like that. So this sort of suspicion is always can be found is pretty fault finding. But the real thing is decontextualization. Yoko Gashima working is true. This Japanese Hikiage, Japanese expellees, suffered from the certain, how can I, retaliation done by Koreans and some, some Chinese and that. But the problem in Yoko Gashima working is that she forgot to mention why her family began to live there. So suddenly, colonial context is totally erased in her description of her suffering. This sort of decontextualization is a real problem, right? And then also, there's a very interesting story. When the uh, Soviet, the vice ministry of Soviet foreign ministry, vice minister uh, foreign ministry in Russia paid a visit to Japan, he had uh, some meeting with uh, former uh, POWs who suffered, you know, in Siberia. And these former POWs began to blame and complain and shout, and then this guy, the vice minister, was really angry. Then, what were you doing there? Why did you, why did you come to Manchuria? And silence. That was written by uh, the translator, simultaneous translator between Russian and, 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 and Japanese. So this means that it's true, these guys, Japanese POWs, were, so, were victims in the Siberian the POW camp. But they forgot to reflect the context in which, why they were there, right? So these sort of things can be found everywhere. So in Germany, the Günther Grass in Krebskang has been criticized very strongly, but I think that Günther Grass in Krebskang, you know, uh, put a very, very serious and several delicate points. For example, the, the guys, German civilians who were victimized by this torpedo attack were supporters of Hitler and then in the, in the Vellon and also the, 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 uh, the ship, Gustloff. The Gustloff was a Nazi commissioner in Switzerland and Gustloff was the ship you that transported, you know, the uh, Condor, uh, German Condor, this Air Force, Air Squadron from Spain to Germany. So uh, the, while uh, Quintagras did not deny that those civilians who killed by the torpedo attack were victims, but he did not forget to say that implicate these guys were also perpetrators. So victims and perpetrators in the, Given historical context, are uh, well balanced uh, in a very well balanced way analyzed in Quintagras. But some other books, this uh, historical contextualization is totally erased. The other one is over contextualization. Okay, we Koreans, as a whole nation, suffered from Japanese colonial rule. Means that all the Koreans were victims. So the, the, the extreme case is Laudansky brothers. These guys actually killed Jews in Yedvavne. But when these Laudansky brothers had an interview with the German press, they said, oh, like the whole nation we suffered from under the Germans, the Soviets, and People's Poland. So why, why? They killed Jews in Yedvavne, suddenly they regard themselves as victims. So this sort of over-contextualization. So Koreans, you know, all the Koreans were victimized. So, so I mean that the Koreans who were the tried as a B and C level were criminals, right? And who were executed in the, in the, in the nation, they were, the, 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 were caught, 
Korean said, oh, they were also victims by the, by the Japanese colonial rule. This sort of over-contextualization can be found also very well. Okay, I'll stop here. Anyway, there's still some more slides, but I'll stop here and in Q&A I want to talk. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, now we have the opportunity to uh, listen to the comment by Professor Hovart, please. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk. Um, actually, uh, I was very heavily involved in uh, uh, reconciliation issues. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Professor Lim's uh, um, talks bring back some of my own memories, which I hope are accurate and not constructed <laughs> and not invented. Um, I, I, um, of course, I have a very personal interest in memories because I happen to be the offspring of uh, Holocaust survivors and also because uh, I lived through the Hungarian uprising and uh, I now see it uh, completely recontextualized all the time. And, uh, but um, I'd like to talk about this not so much as a quasi-scholar, but rather as a uh, retired former journalist, because I was also involved, uh, as, uh, as the introduction said, I'm, I was involved in the, uh, in the, still in the factual era of journalism as opposed to the post-factual. And uh, one of my uh, seniors uh, at, in, in when I started out as a journalist in Canada uh, used to uh, uh, tell us uh, all sorts of you know things, advice for young journalists, and uh, one of his was, um, uh, you know, as a journalist, as a reporter, you should also be willing to you should be willing to listen to prob people with problems. They will bring problems to you, but if a person um, brings you the same problem after six months, chances are that this person prefers the problem to any possible solution. And uh, in the lecture which uh, uh, Professor Lim just gave us, we are dealing with such people, people who fall in love with their problems, their grievances. Their grievances become themselves, their identities. And these are extremely important for them. This, we're living in, a, in an era where national identity, uh, where community identity are extremely important. Uh, uh, we're, it's, it's a time when religious identity is not so important anymore. So therefore, these give people a sense of, uh, of, of validation. And um, we, sometimes I guess we, we, we can take this quite lightly. We laugh at it uh, because sometimes they're so absurd and so absurdly irrational, so, so much uh, divorced from... Uh, from the real facts which we can prove to be the case. And uh, Professor Im uh, mentioned the case of Pak Yuha. Uh, Pak Pang Yuha, who is a, a really a genuinely uh, sincere and uh, hardworking uh, researcher, scholar, who has now been uh, was facing two trials in Korea in connection with her uh, book, Teikoku no Iyanfu, The uh, Comfort Women of the Empire. Uh, and um, 
and if we put this into the context of what uh, Professor Lim has said, which is this whole issue of, uh, of, of the memory space, uh, then we can see that what Pakyuha's real crime is. She is bringing a rationality and historical facts into appear into a uh, an atmosphere of of make believe very very important make believe because this gives many Koreans uh, a much more uh, palatable his, uh, sense of their own past past as victims rather than as uh, almost helpless uh, 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 shall we say not necessarily collaborators but rather um, rather people who who were um, almost sometimes active participants in their own subjugation, which is actually a much more accurate and unpleasant view of Korea's colonial past. Uh, there were indeed many people who were humiliated in, during the colonial period, but unfortunately for Korea, this was also a period of rapid modernization, and it was also a period in which uh, uh, the foundations, not intentionally so, but the unintended consequences of Korea's colonial, uh, uh, colonial period were to lay the foundations for later economic development. Um, it's also a very, very uh, problematic period, problematic uh, past. We have uh, Carter Eckhart's uh, famous uh, 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 Offspring of Empire, which again was extremely controversial in Korea, uh, because it denied the nationalist uh, economic uh, historian historiography of Korea, which is that uh, Jap Japanese colonialism held back uh, Korean development, whereas we can prove quite easily that the opposite was the case. Although the Japanese development of Korea was not intended for the benefit of Koreans, but rather for the the strengthening of the empire and a, a jumping off pay, place to for further expansion into into China. I'm sorry if I kind of um, should we say glossed over some very important issues here, but in actual fact, uh, Korea is very very much in need. Modern Korea is very much in need of dominant narratives that give validation to Koreans, and the comfort women issue is one of those. Uh, all we have to do is look at the uh, the statue uh, uh, of the comfort woman in front of the uh, Japanese embassy in Seoul and Glendale in California and in New Jersey. It's an identical statue, and uh, it is marvelously historically inaccurate. And if I were a Japanese diplomat, uh, which unfortunately I'm not, I could I would I would strongly suggest to the Japanese government to to instead of removing the statue from in front of the embassy, to simply work together to create a, a historically accurate statue of a Korean comfort woman. And because the present uh, statue is of a very, very young girl, possibly a grade school or middle school student, uh, who has a very modern haircut, it's a, a very short haircut, and she is wearing a very short chima skirt, which is quite obvious that she is a student and she is underage. But we also know from historical research uh, undertaken by, um, uh, what is his name, uh, the man from Tsudajuku, um, 
Takasaki Soji, uh, Professor Takasaki, who has done, gone into the archives on uh, a student enrollments in Korea, girl student enrollments in Korea uh, in, during the uh, 1940s under Japanese rule. And we know that Japan, the Japanese government, was not particularly keen in educating Koreans at a higher level and also wasn't very keen uh, to educate women. So the number of Korean girls of this age in Korea at that time in school wearing this kind of uniform was probably throughout the entire period about 50,000. Uh, all of them times four would have to have become comfort women for the claim that 200,000 mostly Korean uh, women became comfort women. So in other words, historically, that is factually, this is wrong. But we also know that most of the Korean comfort women were unfortunately uh, uh, duped, very often sold uh, to handlers, uh, and they were mostly from the countryside, and they were mostly illiterate, and they were badly treated, even at home. Uh, so so if, we, if we got to this particular shared vision of the past, perhaps Koreans and Japanese could actually come together and say, look, this was a terrible thing to have happened. It was a result, it was an, it was a, it, 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 um, how can I put it, um, it illustrates the very poor conditions of women at this time. Uh, uh, let's work together to make sure that this is not the case anymore. How shall we, uh, how shall we, uh, uh, shall we say, reconcile? Well, why don't we have a, set up a foundation which is modeled on the, uh, say, the German Future Fund, in which we take uh, specifically Korean women from poor households and we give them opportunities to come to Japan, Japan's uh, empty universities where, they, where we need students, and, uh, and we give them the future uh, because we've robbed their grandmothers of their past. This would be, I think, something that would go well, would, would, be, would allow Japanese and uh, Koreans to walk away from a negotiating table uh, feeling quite good about the outcome. Uh, but why isn't this taking place? And the answer is because both Koreans and Japanese would like to have what Professor Lim has suggested, which is a narrative of victimhood. And, uh, and I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I worked for five years at the Asia Foundation trying to bring Koreans and Japanese together, and uh, we made some progress, but it was in a very, very low uh, level, uh, not, not sufficient. Um, at that one of those conferences, I uh, happened to meet a Chinese uh, bureaucrat who was invited to one of our uh, attempts at reconciliation, Koreans, Japanese, uh, Chinese, and uh, this particular bureaucrat was the most extremely unpleasant individual. Uh, during the, uh, during the, uh, during all of our talks, the only thing he would ever say is that is the the official line: uh, uh, "Your comments are hurting the Chinese people." These were <laughs> invariably directed at me. Uh, I thought of myself as somewhat uh, meek and unable to inflict this kind of pain on 1.3 billion people, but it's amazing what we can do. So then one day I was called to my room, and this was in Hawaii. It's amazing how these, uh, these uh, uh, historical uh, discussions are held 
uh, at the most salubrious locations, uh, funded heavily by foundations. Uh, uh, I'm delighted to say I, I uh, participate in this uh, many times. But, uh, but anyway, um, I was called to my room. I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't refuse the phone call. So when I come down at this farewell banquet, uh, all all seats were taken except next to this Chinese individual. Uh, this was not by accident. So I sat down, I sat next to him, and I found the most charming conversationalist in the entire group. He said, uh, Mr. Horvath, you know, uh, my professor at the Sorbonne told me that History is not the past, it's the present, it's what you make of it. It's like a department store. Every floor has a different uh, flavor that you can reach for. And, um, and so um, uh, it is what you make it to be. And I realized that I was dealing with someone who, is a, who, is, who, is, who will deny in private everything that he has to say in public. In other words, he was a really nice human being doing his job in a, in a, in a, in a regime that, uh, that has instrumentalized history. And I think this is the major problem, that whereas in Western Europe and Germany has, Germany and Poland, Germany and France, Germany and um, other neighbors have been able to overcome, to deal with the past, because they've, both, they've agreed not to instrumentalize it, not to, to attempt to, to do one up on the other, to remove, to detoxify their history textbooks, uh, to promote uh, uh, sister city ties. This may seem very mundane, but sister city ties between France and, and Germany today are, I think, 2,200 or 2,400. You cannot drive past a German town without seeing all the, you know, all the, the, the obscure names of, of places that they have sister relationships to. Japan and Korea, which have a combined population that is twice that of the combined population of Germany and France, um, have 100 sister city ties. Moreover, most of them are not working because every time there's a crisis, the student exchanges have to be canceled. You know, <laughs> so so anyway, all all of these nations—Korea, China, Japan—as Professor Lim has pointed out very eloquently—they all instrumentalize history, and this victimization is, and it's not only done by governments. The case of Japan is actually quite unusual. I teach a course called World War II History, World War II uh, Experience and Memory. And uh, because students these days don't like to read books very much, I make them re uh, watch movies. This they eventually regret, because the movies I choose are movies that they probably would not want to see. I make them see things like uh, 24 Eyes, Nijushi no Hitomi. How many of you have seen this? Uh, what was your reaction? Actually, I went to the, uh, to the school where they filmed it. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, it was, yeah. It was too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Okay. <laughs> I, I completely forgot about it. Okay, the 24 eyes. Of course, we discovered that 24 eyes is 12 students. 
and uh, 12, 12 students, uh, I think six are girls, six are boys. Uh, suffice to say that this, they all grew up in poverty on, the, uh, on an island in the Inland Sea. Their wartime experiences are without exception outrageously awful. One goes blind uh, uh, to, a, to die. One is injured. I mean, everything is just, I mean, everybody. Uh, now, statistically, of course, this is not right because there were about 80 million Japanese, 3 million uh, of whom died. Uh, as a ratio, it's, the attrition ratio is just simply not there. But it's just to emphasize how horrible war is and how we Japanese were victims. And as Sato Tadao, the film critic, has correctly pointed out, that before these young students all died on the China front, surely they must have killed a few people and did some other awful, unspeakable things, which are not discussed in the film. The other one is uh, the other ones are called Birma no Tatekoto, which is uh, the Burmese harp, and then the uh, uh, fires on the plane. And just for the hell of it, I make them watch Rashomon. And I ask them, which of these four films is about World War II in a realistic sense? Which, which one is really about, uh, recons not, is about uh, war responsibility? And uh, they all say, uh, uh, you know, well, maybe 24 Eyes or maybe... But so and, of course, we all realize that in all these films, the Japanese are victims. They're never shown doing anything terrible. It's only Rashomon which is set in the 11th century where there is a murderer that no one wants to uh, own up to and everyone prettifies their past. And here's uh, Kurosawa, who is putting this together 18 months after the uh, war crimes trials. And if this isn't about the war, I will eat my hat, which is in the Shocho's uh, office. <laughs> so... So anyway, um, I have digressed, uh, but I think that the, um, the issue here that Professor Lim has so eloquently pointed out to, uh, Professor Lim is unlike me. He's a, a genuine scholar, even-handed. He talks about he's a blame on all their houses. But I'm an ex-hack, and I think I'm outraged by the fact that these powerful countries uh, with opportunities, money, are showing such an incredible lack of leadership and imagination to solve soluble problems and prefer instead to nurse them and to, to, uh, uh, to teach these to their children so they can poison the next generation. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>